Listen up, get ready, I'm not gonna take no more. There's a revolution, a revelation going on in my soul. Buckle up, get ready, we're not gonna sit back. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, friends and family, comrades, all citizens of the world, wherever you're at, wherever you're going, wherever you've been, welcome to Live from the Heartland. I'm Michael James here in Chicago's 49th Ward, up along the lakefront and bringing you another edition of the Live from the Heartland show. Today, our guests will be the incomparable Alderman Andre Vasquez from the 40th Ward and Nathan Smith from the Roman Susan Gallery. A little bit of banter before we get to our guests. One of the best things that happened to me this week was I took a ride with my son, Hal, who is our engineer. We went down to Bloomington, Indiana, hauling the sacred pieces of the set from his movie Harvester, an 18-minute horror film. Those of you who have driven by our home notice there's been a big blue tarp out front. That's part of the set and extension of his former bedroom. And we had to take some things to Bloomington. We had a great time. And we came back on Monday. We just drove down, drove back. But we decided, let's not drive back in the red state. So we went over to Danville, Illinois, from Bloomington, Indiana. And we took Highway 1 and State Highway 40, 49, up to 57. But it was really great going through these little Illinois towns on two-lane roads and seeing a lot of harvesting going on out in the fields. I like being in the country. I like small towns. It was a lot of fun. Also on good news, let's get right to it and let's talk about the election that happened this past Tuesday. And, you know, there was a lot of uh, talk about how Biden was slipping and how Trump was leading him in certain states. And uh, you had the governor of Virginia trying to win over the Senate and hold the House so he could push through more draconian uh, abortion bills. What happened? Well, I'll give you a little rundown. In Philadelphia, Democrat Sherelle Parker will become Philadelphia's first female mayor, I think the first black female mayor, and maybe the first black mayor, too. In Ohio, abortion rights are now enshrined in Ohio's Constitution, as well as they also passed legalization of recreational marijuana. In Kentucky, Andy Bashir withstood Mitch McConnell and a lot of big Republican money to win re-election in uh, a red, red Kentucky state, red key, we'll call it, red key, R-E-D-K-E-Y. Um, so congratulations to Andy Bashir. I think he's a guy to watch. I've always liked him uh, from when I first saw him, done a lot for his state, and he's able to reach across party lines. We'll see where he goes. In Virginia, old Yonkin, the guy who was even getting ready to maybe step in instead of Trump in the Republican candidacy this year for presidency, he didn't come out so well. Not only did the Democrats add to their majority in the Senate, but they took back the House. That's real good. We did have a loss in Mississippi. Elvis Presley's second cousin, a fellow also named Presley, he lost his bid to become the governor and to take it away from the Republicans who've had it for 20 years. However, there was some good news in Mississippi. Biologist Fabian Nelson from the House District 66 made history as the first LGBTQ plus lawmaker to ever be elected to the Mississippi State Legislature. So the Democrats have gained major victories in all local races around the country, especially in purple to red leaning Ohio. And um, 
Biden may be unpopular in some polls, but it's clear that the Democratic Party is running successfully in his administration's positive record on jobs, climate control, et cetera. However, you know, there is still a terrible situation in the Middle East, and perhaps Biden's unconditional support of Trump-like Prime Minister of Israel could backfire if the Israeli army gets bogged down in a Gaza guerrilla war. People should really be paying attention to the candidates, the elections coming up, and no matter what the race, let's get involved, particularly in red states where we've just sort of abdicated to the other side. So we'll see what happens. One bad thing that our producer, Tom Clark, one of our producers, also thank you, Katie Hogan and Lynn Orman, but Tom let me know that here in Illinois, people's gas, that's a misnomer, people's gas is trying to get a rate increase in this past week, the Tribune of all papers, maybe it's fine to become a people's paper, they oppose the rate hike for people's gas. So we'll pay more attention to that as it develops. And here in Chicago, we had a lot of activity in our city council. The kind of the council right wing, and I would include Alderman Lopez in that, they did succeed in ousting the mayor's progressive floor leader, Carlos Rosa. Carlos Rosa, a socialist made some big faux pas, and he had to give up his chairmanship of the Finance Committee and being the mayor's floor leader. But another good thing that's happening in the city is that Ed Burke, formerly of the city council, is finally on trial, and we will watch that. One real good thing was the Bring Chicago Home, which is a hopefully a plan to take money from the Illinois transfer tax on sales over a million dollars, that came out of committee, it got passed, so that will be on the ballot in March, and there'll be a referendum question on it. And that'll mean that there'll be money taken from that transfer tax that will go to getting rid of homelessness here in Chicago. It's progressive activists and anti-homeless groups have been advocating for this tax, and it was a major kind of a promise from Mayor Brandon Johnson in his campaign last year. Moving right along. Last week, I had two really good guests, and I'm going to call your attention, because if you go to youtube.com slash Heartland Media or Spotify or Google Podcasts, you can hear or watch the interviews. And we had Ken Grossinger on with his book, Artworks, which he talks about community organizing and art, art for the people, really. And we had the incomparable Flint Taylor on. He talked about the torture machine. He talked about the Burge cases. He talked a lot about cases going on that we need to pay attention to. And you can get both of those on youtube.com slash Heartland Media. On the sports front, the Bears lost again. We got hope. The Bulls, they won the last game they played. There'll be another one before you see this, maybe two more, but they've been close in some games, and I've had a good time watching them. And the Cubs blew everybody's mind by getting rid of their manager, Ross, and they brought in the manager from the Milwaukee Brewers, and he is now the highest paid manager in Major League Baseball. That's pretty heavy. Before we go to the transition and bring on our next guest, let me let you know that my book on Rising Up Angry is finally out. And I will be at the Zine Fest at the Chicago Artworks, I think it's called, at 1926 South Halstead all day on Saturday the 11th. Right after this show, 
you're listening to it on air, you can whip right on over to 1926 South Halstead, and I'll be there until 7 o'clock with photos and books. And there's plenty more to say, but we're going to take a musical break, and we'll be right back with our first guest, the one and only Andre Vasquez, who is the alderman of the 40th Ward in the great city of Chicago. Stay tuned here on the left end of your dial. Mama is dying and daddy is gone. I call the doctor, but there's no telephone. Sister is crying and the medicine is gone. We are the lost ones living all alone. Icebox is empty and the pool is all gone. This wouldn't be happening if my daddy was home. No school tomorrow and no love for my mother. We are the lost ones living all Everybody, here we go. We got our first guest coming on. It's the one and only Andre Vasquez, uh, alderman of the mighty 40th Ward, a neighbor to the uh, south and west of the great 49th Ward. And uh, we've been trying to get Andre on for a while. He's been a frequent guest on our show, always full of information and a fun interview. Uh, he has been real busy. He's, uh, I think, he's the guy in charge in city council of the immigrant so-called crisis. So, hello to you. Hey, how are you doing? Thanks for having me on. Are you keeping busy? <laughs> yes, yeah, yes. I mean, with with everything that's happening with the current migrant challenge, when we're looking at budget, uh, council, just general tensions across town, uh, yeah, never a dull moment, always a lot of work to do. Well, we're glad you're one of the older persons. And uh, are you in that socialist caucus or no? So I am a, one of the Democratic Socialists. Uh, currently not in the caucus. I don't think the caucus is met in a while. So. 
Well, you're our progressive guy. We know that. And it's good to have you as a neighbor and friend. Um, we have, uh, we've had a situation for a while now where, whether it's from U.S. policy, sanctions in the past, capitalism, whatever, lots of people are moving north from the uh, South America, Central America, coming to Chicago, apparently a very popular place to come to, not only as a tourist, but as a future citizen. And uh, we find that the governors of Florida and Texas have been sending um, busloads of migrants here on a regular basis. Uh, I think Chicagoans have stepped up to the plate in many ways. There are some real problems. Why don't you fill us in a little bit about how we're coping with, dealing with, planning to uh, act out around 20,000 new visitors, largely from Venezuela. Yeah, so just as you stated, you've got about uh, 20,000 new arrivals. Uh, I think close at this point to 12,000 in shelters, uh, about 3,500 that are living in the police stations currently, right? So clearly a lot of it that's untenable by any municipal government. Um, we've been, we only have about $150 million that are put towards this uh, migrant challenge. That'll last you maybe till mid next year. And so what's necessary currently is for the president, and I say the president very specifically, it's not Congress because they can't figure things out. The president through executive order expanding work authorization. So it's not just the folks who got here before August 1st, that it's like everyone that needs it in the welcoming city. So that way you can unclog the bottleneck that we're seeing. Uh, and that through the state that the governor coordinates other cities in Illinois to help take on some capacity as well. So uh, just as you said, a lot of uh, neighbors have been volunteering uh, for over a year now with getting zero compensation to support all the folks that are in the police stations. Um, and so we're grateful for that, but we also recognize looking at the scale of the challenge, we need more partners to step up. Do you think we were ready for this or a little bit ready or a little bit caught flat-footed? Uh, I think completely caught flat-footed, right? I think we've said we're a sanctuary city um, because it speaks to our values, but we haven't had the infrastructure for this kind of, of challenge that we see now. And, and you know, also a way to kind of pose it is if you look at the way the federal government works, and you said it exactly right, because of things they've done in other countries to destabilize governments, you have influx of folks that are coming because of climate change, that migrant migration is going to continue to happen. But the federal government picks and chooses what somebody's path to citizenship or integration looks like. In the same time, we've gotten 20,000 uh, Central Americans, Venezuelans, we've gotten 30,000 Ukrainians, and they've been integrated seamlessly through support systems provided by the federal government that these new arrivals aren't getting. I was talking to Omar Lopez, who had been the minister of education for the young lords back in the day. And he brought up, he was talking to my class at DePaul, he brought up how there were more Ukrainians that come than people have come from Venezuela, and they got handled very smoothly. Yeah. What's the what's the difference? Uh, lack of melanin, if I had to be precise. <laughs> Skin color, right. <clears throat> Largely folks that come from European countries get a different experience. And I'll say that that's not even as clear cut, right? Because when the Polish, the Irish, the Italian all came, it was the same narrative when they all touched down. But the on-ramp from that into integration is different based on what the federal government, which has largely been led by white males, decides is comfortable to them. And so I think that's affected a lot of it. Well, here in Chicago, you know, in my ex recent experience, you know, last 20, 30 years, 
we had a number of people come from the Sudan. Lots of people came from Mexico. We, I mean, you know, many, many people, a lot of people from El Salvador and uh, now Venezuelans. And uh, we've got a situation where this happened. At, I'm still not quite clear why the people coming from the Ukraine got to Chicago have been handled differently. Is that because there's a, a larger Ukrainian community that helped out? It's, it's some of it, right? But it's also having the incentives and support systems. I think also the narrative might appear different because when you're coming from a, a country at war, right, right, compared to what are economic challenges, I think people view that differently and are able to justify it differently. Um, it's clear that because Congress is split, it becomes even harder to try to make those adjustments. Yeah. But even with the folks you mentioned, like Mexicans, other folks that have been here before, a lot of them are walking around undocumented and getting paid under the table. And so what we recognize is if you take the lens of um, capitalism, white supremacy off a little bit, right? These folks are going to become taxpayers. So why not make the on-ramp quicker? Because it adds to our tax base in a way that helps fund government and services the way we would want. And I think that's probably the reframing we need to all be talking about. Yeah, you know, I was, um, I've been thinking about it. Um, a lot of these people will become citizens. They will be neighbors. They will be voters in our city. And I'm a little, uh, you know, I think at first we were welcoming everybody. And all of a sudden we started seeing these little outbreaks of resistance. Uh, and some of it's probably justified. I mean, there's some Black Latino tension, uh, you know, where a lot of people in the city have uh, their schools that got closed and, money hasn't come and all of a sudden there's a big effort to help newcomers so i can understand that but um where does this leave us like in the city council with latinos and blacks who we like yeah. to have us working together with some progressive whites to make a better chicago a better illinois a better world but we're we're having some skirmishes on the ground i mean well i mean as you see we're having some skirmishes in the council as well so i think i think all of it is part of the tension that just happens to be in the air because of the situation. Like, I think if you're a black Chicagoan, you're very justifiably feeling a certain way about the situation because there are parts of town that have been needing investment where folks have been organizing, fighting, begging for this kind of investment are told there are no funds. And then now in this situation, see a, what feels like a flood of funds and investment coming. So, uh, you know, Capitalism and scarcity causes us to look at a situation and say, well, if somebody's gaining something, we're losing something. And I think we as government could be doing a better job of creating mutual wins and figuring out how to solve for this. But because we have the tensions being what they are, um, some of that is manifesting in the council. Although largely we're all able to talk and get along, like we have different constituencies that we answer to. And so it does, you then have to be in situations that are tense given all the different perspectives on the issue. Well, I would imagine in the council that does have a number of avowed socialists, um, you would have some people working for unity and trying to bridge the gap. Where are at? Who are the people we uh, we should be looking at? And anything good information to come on uh, you could share about that? Yeah, I, mean, I, I think I think there definitely are some of the other challenges. Though it is, I'll say that it pertains as it pertains to like the progressive left in Chicago. They largely weren't talking about immigration at all. Right. And so now you kind of see, oh, this is this is a real situation. I think largely people are trying to like digest and process and figure out what part to play. But now when they feel like progressive champions might be facing some level of attack, 
they want to attack back and then that leads to like this increased tension rather than hey let's all find a way to talk but there's folks like maria Haddon, you know matt martin mike rodriguez myself um you know the uh, angela clay um that are really trying to figure out how to have conversations like jeanette taylor right who is in the thick of it with wadsworth like her and i talk regularly and have a very good relationship because i understand what that feels like because i've been on the ground in all the different wards as well so you know, there's a lot of promise there. I think the challenge is us finding a moment to breathe rather than feel like it's crisis mode all the time in a way that doesn't allow for it. Well, Andre Vasquez, you is, isn't your role now as the head of the immigration situation? Is that one of your tasks? Yeah, so I appreciate that because I clear, I'm the chair of the committee, which means like we hold hearings and I try to call balls and strikes, right? But ultimately, the head ends up being the deputy mayor of immigrant and refugee rights, uh, Beatriz Ponce de Leon. You also got Christina Passion Zayas, who is the deputy chief of staff that also does decision making. And then you've got the mayor's team. So we try our best to make sure the public finds out the information and like point out things that are concerning. Like when Garda World first, when we found out about it, I came out publicly saying I had concerns, right? Just to voice it. So I try my best to be independent uh, in the role. Well, one of the biggest things around all this immigration is where we're going to, uh, you pointed out that there are 3,500 people sleeping in police stations still. And I know that we had people up here along the lakefront uh, at Leon Beach. And I think there were some people at the old YMCA. Uh, there's people at the armory. Um, I do have a plan, and I don't know if you can figure a way to do it, but we should take St. Scholastica which is uh, being sold and yeah. turn that into the immigration welcoming center. And then later it can become a park district or a school. Hopefully it won't just be torn down and apartments built. Uh, but that's my idea. How do we, you know, beyond that, how do we deal with uh, the, the whole tent thing rather than putting people yeah. in buildings? I think your analysis is right. It's one that I share that like, if you're purchasing property to use for this purpose, you can then repurpose it post the challenge to be community centers, to be affordable housing, to be right shelters for folks who need it, because unhoused are, that are separate from the non-migrants still need that infrastructure as well. I think what I've seen or lately is that the archdiocese has been more open to conversation around some of their properties. Because it's yeah, they got some churches getting empty. <laughs> yeah, it's that. And like I saw um, Ronnie Mosley in where they just purchased or got donated a big plot of land that they're going to make for you know, Garden World tense at this moment, but once that's over with, making that a community site, making that a, a, a something that's more vibrant. What so, yeah, do you I, got on the the near horizon about getting people out of police stations before uh, it really starts snowing here? Well, I mean, I think that's 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 what we're looking at. That's why I think the base camps are becoming more and more a reality because it, it, without the runtime to figure out leasing, buying properties, those negotiations. They're looking at it and saying, this is the quickest way we can get something up to decompress. If not, when winter comes, it's going to be a worse situation. And so I do understand that it's a difficult decision and a difficult moment, um, but that that is what they're looking to do. Um, you know, one of the things that's come up in the city council is some resistance to our longtime designation as a, a sister city city, where we are, you know, have good relationships with places from you know, other places. Some of that had to do with migrants in the past, like from El Salvador and stuff. Uh, what is the challenge to the, our designation as a sister city? 
and who is it coming from and how do we deal with it? Yeah, so I think I think it's coming from a lot of different angles because of the tension raised by the current crisis, right? So people are conflating the two issues and saying they're all sending the buses because we're a sanctuary city. So if we stop doing that, maybe the buses won't come. We're inviting them, right? The reality is sanctuary city is a specific, or they'll say we're spending too much money on the migrants. We're doing too much. The sanctuary city ordinance doesn't have anything to do with either of those challenges. All it says is, can police officers interact with federal law enforcement as it relates to people who are undocumented? We believe they should not. I think it leads to the kind of profiling, not only of undocumented folks, but people of color. It leads to um, misconduct cases. It leads to lawsuits. So it is not a good idea. The reason why it's such a challenge that people are bringing it up is they're very frustrated about the, the crisis. Now, if you remove the sanctuary city ordinance uh, and we were no longer that, it's not going to stop the buses because we have the DNC coming in August no matter what. That's right. The buses are going to keep happening. And so the, the other challenge is you've got elected officials who, because they're hearing all this tension from the community, think that's an easy answer they can give back. And others who think they can capitalize off of it when they're running for elections for larger seats, right? Because if you get the folks who are scared, the xenophobe folks, all coming out and turning out to vote because of this issue, maybe they'll support their guy who happens to support that issue as well, right? So it's a lot of different layers that are causing the challenge. And because of the black and brown tension, it makes it hard for like the mayor to figure out where to position and how to move forward in a way that brings people together, I, I imagine. Well, we got to figure it out because, you know, we've always been a welcoming city and we are a progressive city compared to the most places in the country. Yeah. And uh, we've always, we did have a, a rainbow coalition on a lot of levels here in this town, you know, and we, uh, you know, I really just uh, hope we can figure a way to welcome these folks as neighbors. I know that you did mention the state and I did hear while I was driving back from uh, way downstate, uh, I was coming up from Bloomington then to Danville. Um, I heard that the 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 governor announced that there would not be any more money coming from the state right now. And I don't know what the prospect of the, um, you know, with the feds coming up with money, with the work, work authorization. Uh, can you give us any info on? And I also remember hearing that some people, some cities were requesting migrants come. Yeah, uh, I mean, Wichita or St. Louis or something. Yeah, I think um, I think largely it's about the narrative that because we're on defense about the situation rather than understanding that these folks, once they become taxpayers and citizens, are going to be a net benefit. Other cities see that and they're like, send them on over. We'll take some population. Right. right? Um, I, I think that overall, you kind of stated it right. The funds are, aren't necessarily coming. Um, the work authorization needs to be expanded and hasn't been. So we have to have a real conversation about what the city can and can't do, given the funds that it does have. But I think when we talk about Sanctuary City, the other thing to keep in mind is, I think it's going to be a coin toss as to who the next president is, Democrat or Republican. If we end up with a Republican president, it's that much more important to have Sanctuary City ordinance in there, given how that can then play out. And so um, I think that we've got to stop being in crisis mode and focus on the next six months to a year and see what's coming down the pipe to be able to make the right decisions. Well, we did have a good week for Democrats uh, with Andy Bashir, with Virginia, with Ohio, a few other places. Katie Hogan was here a little while ago and she said, ask him about the city's leadership. 
at different levels from the mayor on down. Uh, how's it looking? And uh, how could we improve? I think it's, um, I like to level set uh, for comparison to the last term, right? Mayor Lightfoot had a whole year before her crisis began, whereas this team is stepping, you know, help chin deep into a real crisis, right? So it becomes harder to really understand how they're operating because they're taking on so much at once, right? They've got to figure out how these departments are working. Um, so it's a work in progress. I think it's a little bit to be determined. But I, what I am grateful for is that unlike the last administration, we definitely are being let into, you know, somewhat more when it comes to giving our feedback, working on legislation, trying to find solutions um, in a way that that felt more combative last term with under life. Well, I read this this morning, Carlos Rosa kind of made a faux pas and got into it with some fellow members of the council and he lost his positions and they were naming people, perhaps it was in the Sun-Times, who were possible floor leaders in the future. Is that anything in your future? Why are you wishing so much bad luck on me, my friend? I'm not wishing. I saw your name. You you were the last name listed as a maybe. <laughs> yeah, no, I I like. I've got a lot of work to do as chair of the Immigrant Refugee Rights Committee. I've got tons of work to do in the ward to make sure we're supporting the neighbors. I think there's a lot of other things that I like working on. I'll be honest. After spending a month in City Hall with budget season, I I yearn for staying in the ward, and so. I think part of me being able to interact more with the neighbors and solve for that, I view as a more direct way for me to make things better for folks. Um, that being said, if folks were to, to bring it up, it's not something I wouldn't entertain, right? So, Well, Andre, it's always good having you on. And can we get you to commit to coming on again in another few weeks, maybe? And to yeah, fill we get in on how our things are? Yeah, no, as long as we, we book it on the calendar, they'll drag me around and put me in. I like it. Yeah. So you made me it. go to a, a calendar rather than just a personal call. Um, yeah. Is there anything we left out in this little interview that uh, you uh, want to share? Yeah, I mean, so I think I think the budget is also coming up. And I think that's, that's if this is any other year, budget would be front and center, right? Now right. it's like it's like fourth, fifth on the list. But um, that's looking good. In, in it, I was able to help negotiate to put funds towards a reparation subcommittee to start really working on on that because I think we need to show how much we're doing for our our, our Black Chicagoans as well as you know African descendants of slavery. Um, we were able to get more uh, ward office staff to be able to serve folks on the ground better. Um, we got a Department of Environment coming, so I think there's a lot of good things to support in this budget, and um, we look forward to, to talking to our neighbors about it. Well, you're a hell of a guy, and I want to thank you for coming on live from the heartland again. And uh, you will get my call again. Yeah, I'm just following in y'all footsteps. You know, I'm, I'm glad to be here. So thank you for saying that. We, we want to thank everybody who is listening in, and we want you to stay tuned. We'll be right back after a little musical break with our next guest.
Consider that your next lover's gonna be the blues. Cause daddy, I'm gonna be gone. Day's gonna be dark as the night. And things just won't be. Everybody, we're back with more live from the heartland. I'm still Michael James here in the 49th Ward, a very blue section of a very blue Chicago, and we are glad to be here. And uh, you know, in riding around the neighborhood here in the 49th Ward, Rogers Park, um, I came across a, a place. It was kind of a funky-looking storefront. It's right next to the wonderful Archie's Cafe, and uh, it had a, a name on it: the, the Roman Susan Gallery. And I tried to uh, find out a little bit about it, weasel my way in, maybe with a show a few years ago. It took a while, but I eventually met this next fellow, Nathan Smith, who's going to tell us all about the Roman Susan Gallery and uh, some of the events that they're putting on, which I have some ties to, as well as some challenges to their ongoing existence. So with not any what they used to call further ado, I'm just going to say... <laughs> How are you, Nathan? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on, Michael. It's good to um, have you on. So yeah. how about a little history of this Roman Susan Gallery? Yeah, so Roman Susan is in a small storefront that's actually on Loyola Avenue. It's like ah. just west of the Loyola train station. And it is named after my partner and my wife's grandparents, Roman and Susan. Um, she, Kristen Abhalter, she is a artist who has a background in theater design and sculpture and painting. And she had a studio at the end of the block, basically, of Loyola Avenue. And she just kept walking by, as you said, this funky little storefront. And it was for rent. And she had some experience running storefront art spaces in Minneapolis. And she was just sort of like, you know, we're going all over the city all the time to see different kinds of cultural things happening. Maybe there could be a little more right where we live because we live like a five minute walk away. 
And she called up the place and the rent was cheap. And she was like, I'm going to think about it for a week. And she thought about it for a week and she decided like, no, that's too much. I, I can't do that on my own. And then she was incredibly displeased with herself for a week. And that at the end of that second week, she was like, I've got to do this thing. Like I need to open this space up and see what the neighborhood wants it to be. So she did that in November, 2012. So we oh. just sort of looped around and ended our 11th year at this space. Um, and the entire time we've been here, it, it's been interesting because it is in a strange space. Like you said, it's, it's where the train sort of is going on a diagonal northwest. Yeah, and people so it, are going down Sheridan Road. Uh, yeah. train, if they're going south on Sheridan Road above Devon there, it's, uh, you go under the L track. And uh, on the other side of the tracks, around the corner is on Loyola Avenue, is a little uh, little funky strip of uh, the coolest stuff in the neighborhood these days with both Archie's and the Roman Susan Gallery. Yeah, and it's, you know, the train disrupts the street grid and it also like defines the shape of the building. So it's this flat iron that's built, you know, on the, to uh, the total footprint of the lot. And we're in the very nose of the the flat iron so our space is sort of like a pie shape and it's very yeah. small which is why it works as an experimental space for art because it's so small that we can afford to do it and not have to decide that it needs to make money selling art which i think is one of the defining things of what's happened here so far in the last 11 years um like roughly 150 artist-led projects have happened in this space and after the first couple of years, we really figured out what we were doing. And we're like, we're not really a gallery. We're not going to sell art. We're not going to go to art fairs or store things. But we want to hold space and be a platform for artists to explore their ideas that couldn't work somewhere where you would have to sell something. So like this Friday, we have an opening with an artist who is primarily a dancer and a choreographer. The artist's name is Courtney McIndans, and they have sculpture in this space that is made out of different materials that are meant to be interacted with, and it's partially made out of ice. If we were trying to sell art, we could not have ice sculptures by someone who's never had an exhibit as something we decide to do for two months, you know? Unfortunately, that'll be the night before this gets aired, although yeah. the people who go to YouTube early enough will find out about it. The opening's on Friday, but it'll be here for a month. So okay. if you want to come visit, you won't miss it if you aren't here Friday. Let me ask you, Nathan, what are some of the highlights of the exhibits you've had in there over the last 11 years? I think people responding to the space in the neighborhood as they are is a really big part of it, not sort of treating it like a blank canvas that can just hold whatever idea they had before they got here. So I think it works really well for site responsive things and things that are interactive. Uh, and one example of that is uh, an artist named Jay Kent. We just had an exhibition with them, but 10 years ago we had an exhibition with them that was called On the Impossibility of a Singular Hand. And what they, they had a very 
involved visual exhibition, but they had a performance where they sprouted seeds in the palm of their hand over the course of a week. And it was always in someone's hand. It was in their hand 99% of the time, but the space was open 24 hours a day for a week. They slept on the floor. They like lashed this seed pod in their hand and people could just interact with them in any way they wanted. They didn't provide for their own needs. Like people brought them food. They didn't have any food unless someone brought it. So that sort of like extravagant trusting and interactive gesture. Uh, that's one of the bigger ones that someone has made here. <laughs> Very trusting, but uh, I think when people channel that kind of spirit and really interact with the people around them, that's when it gets exciting. Um, Nathan, let me ask you, what has been the impact of having Archie's, which started later than you did? Uh, it's been yeah. a few years. And it, I refer to Archie's kind of as, it's, you know, a woman named Roberta runs it and they mm -hmm. have a liquor license and they have some art and they, it's a neat little spot. In a lot of ways, it's the closest thing to the Heartland Cafe, long gone. Um, yeah. What's been your relationship with Roberta, with Archie's, and has that uh, impacted your gallery at all? Um, so Roberta has been in these storefronts as long as we have, they did sort of different iterations and ideas. And another neighbor of ours, Maggie Roche has also been here the whole time we have. So we've all been here for 11 plus years. And Roberta initially did a couple different things that were very like art studio like. And so we would collaborate on dates and times. I think that Archie's really changes the dynamic of the street in that it has a much more, uh, consistent presence, right? Like they're a restaurant, they have regular hours, they're open. Whereas we are, you know, we occasionally will be like, we're gonna be closed for three weeks because someone's building an ice sculpture and then we'll be open again for a while. Like it changes the dynamic a lot to have people knowing they can come there all the time and there is present and there are people there. We try to stay visible and interesting from the street while we're not here, but their presence really changes the foot traffic. And and the like incorporation of music and performance like is enormous. You know, they're having music four or five times a week, which is a total sea change. The street used to be very deserted uh, at different points. You'd just be sitting on the sidewalk by yourself forever. And that was fun, but it definitely is interesting that there are more people and it engages uh, college students way more than our mildly esoteric art possibly does. <laughs> oh, well, you've yeah. got, you. I understand from talking with you, um, you have a challenge coming up to your future. Uh, why don't you tell us how you're structured? Because uh, yeah. I think you're probably a not-for-profit and tell us uh, about your rental situation. Yeah, so we are a non-for-profit and we, after we were here for three years, we decided to go that route. And when we did, we decided that the only people we wanted on our board were artists who had done things here before. So they are very sympathetic to our aims. Um, for the first nine years we were here, we had a lease that had a 30-day opt-out for the landlord. And the year we moved in, the, there used to be no train entrance on our side of the train they put one in that year and 
Loyola invested a lot of money in the train station and they own all of the real estate surrounding our building. So almost from the start, we were just like, any day now, like the other shoe is going to fall 30 days from now, that could be the end of us here. So we had a lot of time to like mentally prepare for that. And we took a lot of like programming actions to make sure that if we didn't have a storefront, we could still meaningfully engage and exist in the neighborhood where we live. Um, and so we now have five programs and our storefront is one of them. Um, but currently the building is for sale, actively for sale, which it had not been in the past. Uh, we happen to have a lease that is a couple years in the future now. So that's a little bit more security for us, but it definitely seems like our presence in this storefront has a shelf life of one or two more years. So we're going to make the best of the time that we have and really try to invest our attention and excitement in some of the other programming we're doing. Um, one part of that is for the last uh, 18 months, two years, something like that, we've been holding events at Burger Park, which is part of a series called Movement Studies. Um, and that is that is a bit of the tie-in between you and I right now. Uh, well, tell everybody about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Movement Studies is attempts to be a responsive series of events at Burger Park that are related to social or environmental transitions. Um, and they're all led by artists. So in the past year, we've had a variety of things. Like we had a quilting mending workshop. We had a footwork dance competition. And we're currently hosting a series of events with Frutas, which is a trans-led organization that is holding uh, Spanish language literary events. So they're collaborating with trans writers in Mexico City to present their work. Um, on November 20th, we are fortunate enough to host a book launch for yourself about rising up angry. So maybe do you care if I flip it for a second and ask you uh, what your experience is with the book so far and just uh yeah i was motivated to get this book out i've always thought about it uh and i kind of just envisioned um you know i put out a series of books called pictures from the long haul which are my photos and i've done three of those um in the last few years and i was planning to do one on rising up angry because we were having a gathering a lot of us in our 80s now we're getting kind of old uh and we pulled people together. I mean, there are some younger people and, of course, the kids and grandkids of the Rising Up Angry People. But I decided to get a book done for that event, which was on the 14th of, um, what is the month, October. And um, my son, David Libman, who lives down in Athens, Georgia, and does a lot of the layout. He used to do stuff for the old Heartland Journal, et cetera. He's been around a long time, knows a lot of stuff. He really expanded the book to include, um, you know, memories from a lot of the, the early members. Uh, and it wasn't, so it's not just a picture book. There's a bunch of text. And um, we've almost sold enough of them. And this is without having a distributor or being in many bookstores, probably sold almost enough to break even. And that's a chunk. Um, and I know that 
the first 30 people that are coming to your, the event uh, over at Burger Park on the Monday the 20th at 7 p.m., they all get a free copy signed with a Red Star stamp and maybe a little note if we have time and figure it out. Um, but I've had a good response to the book, both on Facebook, on Instagram, in person. If anyone ever wants to get one and they don't know how, just get a hold of me at fatback at AOL.com and we'll help you out. But I would recommend that you all get ready to go over to Burger Park. Beautiful place. I think it's at Granville and Sherrod. And um well, hold on. Can I can I pause for one second? There's a fire inspector at our door <laughs> at Roman Susan. I think I have to stop. We're back with uh, Live from the Heartland. We're talking with Nathan Smith of the Roman Susan Gallery, and he just had a fire inspector come into the door. And I'm wondering if that's in any way connected to uh, what is perceived to be a possible takeover of your, or purchase of the building by Loyola. And I think you once used the term glacier or glacial institutions. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think that, well, I think anyone running maybe a street level art space has a lot of thoughts about what effect it has on the things around it. And I think that, you know, gentrification is obviously a large outstanding thing that is has been historically related to art in various ways. Where we are situated, completely surrounded by uh, what is owned by an institution that's been here for 100 years, and presumably they want to continue being here for 100 years, will, it, feels, sure. it feels a little different to me than other sort of like, you know, I, when I hear gentrification, I often think of like making an area cool. I don't think that's really what we can possibly do here because we're surrounded by like huge corporate things. There's no, there's no middle wave. It's all this large institutional thing that will keep moving out into the surrounding area. Um, and it's all sort of, you know, inevitable and carving the landscape, maybe a little like a glacier. Well, it, I don't know what will happen over there. There's some empty space. Yeah. Some buildings have already been torn down, but uh, people should make sure they check out the uh, Roman Susan Gallery and Archie's Cafe because the future, I mean, they're, it's a hip little section of the neighborhood and we'll see how long it lasts. We're going to run out of time. So let me ask you one more question, Nathan. Sure. What is wage? It's something that you yeah. uh, shared with me, and I um, I like the notion of paying artists. Yeah, so, so yeah. as we matured as an artist-run organization, um, one of our long-term goals was to you know pay for the real cost of things, pay people to do the work they're doing, which is art. Uh, and oftentimes, people get caught in a situation where they're doing lots of free work for exposure or the potential to sell something in the future. Um, WAGE is an organization, the acronym is Working Artists in the Greater Economy, and they're based in New York. And essentially they're taking models sort of like from, uh, one of the models is the Canadian uh, model for institutes of contemporary art where there's standardized artist fees across nonprofits. Like you are a nonprofit, you are not really in the space of selling art. So if people are doing the work to share their work through your organization, you are obligated to pay them. And so I think we started paying people at a low 
wage, yeah, the low rate sort of in 2018, a, a couple of years after we became a nonprofit. And last year we finally met wage rates, which are sort of like a minimum that they set for any organization with income under $500,000. Our budget is under a hundred thousand. So making that amount available to artists is like a real desired commitment for us uh, that we do our best to do that because otherwise there's sort of only people who can afford to work for free can exist in that space, right? And that excludes tons of people and tons of artists. Um, and an important part of our program at our storefront is that we're, we accept proposals from artists and we facilitate as many as we can. But if you're proposing something to a space where there's no financial support, only certain people can do that, right? And we found ourselves culpable in this situation of just perpetuating impoverished artists or only artists who have other kinds of wealth to be able to do it. So we're trying to change that. Um, and we prioritize paying people. And no, that's great. Paid. And I, I'm, I really like that you, in working with me, we worked it out so that uh, the first 30 people who come on Monday the 20th over to Burger Park will get a free copy of my book, Rising Up Angry. Yeah. Uh, you, will you give us a website where people can and your address one more yeah. time? Yeah, our, our website is romansusan.org. So it's R-O-M-A-N-S-U-S-A-N dot O-R-G. And our storefront location is at 1224 West Loyola Avenue. Um, the event we will be doing on November 20th is at Burger Park Cultural Center, and that's at 6205 North Sheridan. Um, it's a park that's right on the lake. It's hard to park around there. If you can take public transit, please do, because there's not a lot of parking spots, but uh, the tr bus and train run right by it. So, yeah. I want to thank you very much, and I'll be talking to you in the next week or so. Uh, and uh, I'll probably stop in over by the gallery even before then. Uh, cool. So thank you so much there, young fella. And yeah. uh, I, I want to thank everybody else who's been tuned in today to this edition of Live from the Heartland. A couple of little announcements from our music producer, Lynn Orman. On November 12th, that's uh, coming right up at City Winery, there is a Soul Brunch. And Irene Michaels, a cabaret and jazz person, will be at the Epiphany Center November 18th. And there'll be a tribute and fundraiser for the blues woman Mary Lane at Fuller's Bar, hosted by Lynn Armin, and that is on November 22nd. It's a rough world out there. All the things that you and I and Nathan and the Aldermen and all of us, whatever we do is really needed for this time. So keep doing good in the world because the world needs all the good that we all do. Thank you to Lynn Orman, to Tom Clark, to Katie Hogan, to our guest, Nathan Smith, and Alderman Vasquez, our engineer, Hal James. And we'll see you next week. Stay tuned. Got a dream awaiting. I can see it in your eye. It may not come easy, but you know you've got a friend. 
I'll be by your side the entire ride. Just let me hear you say amen. Are you doing, doing? Are you doing the best you can? Tell me, are you doing? 